and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here, back with you for the middle of the month of April already. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's so glad to be back with you once again here on this fine audio program. We thank you so much for joining us, as I'm sure you are thanking us for producing more high-quality free content that you are listening to, along with about a hundred other podcasts you currently have on your playlist that's just how people do these days absolutely and uh yes this week i'm dennis the man who both thinks that it's wild that steamed hams is 25 years old and also that steamed hams became as popular and culturally important as it has so steamed hams of course being one of the uh the seminal bands of the alt rock movement of the uh mid middle part of the 90s, uh, born out of the grunge scene that uh, dominated the early sounds of the uh, early 90s in popular music. But Steam Hams, uh, being a band that uh, was initially signed to Sub Pop Records in Seattle, or out of Seattle, before uh, before they formed their own independent label, and uh, just had a very different sound compared to everyone else at that time. Isn't that right? Um, <laughs> very, very compelling, very compelling, but... Inaccurate. I, I'm I, glad he went in that direction, though. But yeah, yeah, I had you going for a while there, didn't I? <laughs> I was like, well, I know it's not true, but let's see where he's going with this. <laughs> yes, Steamed Hams, of course, being the the classic, basically Simpsons anti joke sketch, which I, you know, I, you know, I've read like an oral history of it by from Bill Bailey, who is like the the one that wrote it and stuff. Basically, how he wanted to make his own like you know, just like an inept version of um, who's on first, but basically make it go nowhere because of like, you know, the, the, the awful, like non-existent chemistry between Skinner and the superintendent Chalmers, Mm -hmm. how it's like, (laughs) yeah. Anyways, like I, and I think when he wrote it, it was just sort of like, ah, whatever, this will be just kind of a funny one note joke let's keep it going it's just like a terrible dinner party and you know whatever anyways moving on because it was part of that 22 short films about springfield episode which is a great episode lots of classic moments in there but for some reason within the last what five six years the internet's really kind of like sunk its teeth into it as something that like everyone loves yeah i'm not entirely sure why the internet uh, seems to have more suddenly and more recently come around to it as as being a great piece of comedy that is universally uh praised and accepted um and why it individually is parsed out of that entire episode of 22 short films about springfield yeah i mean uh, granted like I think part of it might be the the rise of the what they call the Simpson shitpost culture where you know it's basically memes but it's like very creative memes because it's people taking like it's unfortunate that it's called something so dumb as shitpost because you know it's people taking episodes well, not episodes, but like jokes from episodes and mixing with jokes from other episodes to make entirely new ridiculous jokes that are basically only funny if you understand both jokes, but they're always funny because everyone making them, it's like this, it's kind of an echo chamber, but because there's so many people who are fans of the old Simpsons, it doesn't really even feel that way. It just feels like a new part of culture and in a weird way, a very good, like they're, they're often really good companions 
companion pieces really to the original jokes in and of themselves. Cause it's like, Oh yeah, this reminds me of both those jokes, but bringing those two things together makes this one new ridiculous thing I hadn't thought of before. And that's great. Yeah. They're finding ways to creatively remix the, the old jokes, which on their own, uh, I mean, stand and uh, people still enjoy so many old jokes from the Simpsons can quote them ridiculously. I know you and I can certainly have a good go to and fro, uh, you know, on that front, but uh, then it just leads to something else entirely that blows your mind that perhaps you hadn't considered before with these ridiculous Photoshop jobs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah, but for some reason, like, I mean, one of the most remixed scenes and like most quoted scenes in the whole like culture of the shit posts is definitely steamed hams where people and even not within shit posts, but like just in general, like just even the other day, one of my friends linked me to um, a remix someone did of Feel Good Ink by the Gorillas, but all of the things were just parts of steamed hams where like <laughs> the, you know, the, the melody line was just basically all like, you know, just taking like the whole conversation between Skinner and Chalmers, but like kind of like making it fit the melody line that that whole thing that they do, but like very just pitching the conversation to fit into that, like with the the song going in the background. It's like, how do people come up with this, these crazy ideas? And like, there's like a million, like if you search steamed hams on YouTube, you'll find a million, like million videos and they're all different and they're all crazy. I think uh, uh something I was uh, uh informed of the other day uh, one of my coworkers had found and was telling me about was uh I I believe the scene of steamed hams or a snippet from the steamed hams uh, uh segment from that episode done in many different ridiculous animation styles. Oh yeah, yeah, where it's like 12 different animators animate the scene like a few seconds of the scene each and then passed on to another animator. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. I I saw that before and it's like, wow. So it's just like, this is how like culturally significant this thing has become. We're like, and there were like, it wasn't just no name internet animators either. Like it was like legitimate people from what I recall in that whole list. I uh, I believe so, though none of you know none of the names are immediately coming to my mind here in this moment. Uh, it's something I'll have to look up after. But it's uh, it's a wild concept that this one segment, this one maybe two, maybe three minute segment from a larger episode with again twenty two or twenty one other stories being told in this episode is the one that's caught people's attention and stuck with them through all these years. Now twenty five years on. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, is it largely due to the fact that it's playing against type? It's an, you know, an anti-joke, you know, segment? Like, I don't know. Like, I think part of that, that's a very big part of it. And I think maybe a lot of, like, current, like, internet humor and stuff. Like, I think, like, the inter- like the humor of the people our age and younger, I think it's a lot more... Like, I want to say ironic, but not even ironic. Just, I think a little bit like, like, truly dataist, like beyond <laughs> surreal, but like really in like this crazy dataist kind of like way of like finding things funny that are like 
insane and like in many ways like nihilistic, but also not always nihilistic and just crazy. So I don't know. Like I, I think it's almost like this weird, like prototypical, like current internet humor, like not prophetic, but like maybe it's like a weirdly, you know, influential thing in that regard. Cause like, you know, people our age and stuff grew up watching Simpsons, but some of these things like stuck out to us that I think, well, I don't know, like, like as Conan O'Brien has said, you know, in the past about his show and stuff, like, I'm sure it was also true for everyone back then where it's just like, you have no idea who, well, like if your show is popular and who it's popular with. And like, at least with Conan O'Brien, he just assumed his show was like, you know, basically not watched by anyone. And he was always on the verge of being canceled, but little did he know, like people like you and myself were watching it every night, basically like having our like very young person humors very much molded by this ridiculous, insane show that was on past our bedtime, <laughs> basically, you know, so it's like, and then he, you know, when he, whatever he meets people our age now, and then they're like, you are like super important to my sense of humor. I'm sure that a lot of them kind of like have that now. And I think, yeah, I, I think um the steamed hams thing probably has a lot of that to it too. Yeah, I suppose so, because, uh, you know, that is what makes it stand out is in the grander scheme of that episode, it's anti-joke, but, um, some of the, you know, the one-liners in there just are so ridiculous that, you know, they themselves lend, are lended so easily to the shitposting culture and everything now, but they stand alone almost being surrealist too. Yeah. You know, like Skinner claiming that, oh, it's not a fire, it's the, you know, northern lights. Exactly. Like, it's just like, uh, it's like Seymour, the house is on fire. No mother. It's just the northern lights. <laughs> like, <laughs> like what? Like, yeah, like if I just search steamed hams, like, it's like steamed hams, steamed hams, but there's a different animator every 13 seconds. Um, Binging with Babish cooks Simpsons inspired steamed hams, steamed hams ink, which is that, you know, feel good ink, steamed hams, but it's voiced by Jeff Goldblum, <laughs> steamed hams, but it's the Australian dub, steamed hams, but it's take on me, which is also insane. Or, you know, when Skinner makes it to the window to do his isometric exercise, it's the video for take on me. <laughs> <laughs> steamed hams, but it's recreated using only Seinfeld clips. Like, like, I, I hate the term, but I'm going to say it's incredibly apt. It really has crazy legs. Like, Steamed Hems has legs on the internet. And it's like, I don't understand how it became as popular as it did, but I'm so glad that it did because it's like, yeah, it's like, I understand it. Like, I get it. It's one of those, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say rare because, like, there's a lot of things where that I find funny that are popular and I understand, like, makes sense but it's just like yeah like this one was like a little bit on the fence where I'm like okay I found it funny but like will other people find it funny and thankfully yes I, I wonder if a contributing factor here is just the setup to that whole segment you know uh, Superintendent Chalmers going over to Skinner's house for, for lunch um, is just such a benign concept 
Yeah. Like there's no immediate or an inherent wackiness to it that it's, you know, antithetical to, to a cartoon, if you will, two grown men, two adults meeting each other for lunch. Yeah. And like basically under the pretense that one doesn't like the other and the other is trying super hard to make the other one like him. And it's not working at all. And he's basically like just trying everything he can to like improve his station with this person. And it's just like when you, when you think about it in on like in purely technical terms, that sounds awful. <laughs> it's just like that, like who would want to watch that? That would just be an uncomfortable thing to watch. And it's like, yeah, there's no hook there. No, it's like what? Okay. So like. So it's just like a sad thing and it's just like, yeah, but they turned it into this like brilliant like anti-joke and it's so funny. It's just like, okay, great. Like if you just – like if you were dropped in culture right now with no idea of what's going on, like if you were you were vaguely aware of The Simpsons, like maybe you were like transported here from a time machine from like 1994 or something. Like, yeah, you knew The Simpsons was popular but like you're now, okay, drop you ahead 25 years. Like maybe even – you know, maybe you're aware of steamed hams because you just recently watched it. And then like, it's like, okay, whatever. It was kind of funny. Or like, maybe you haven't seen Steve hams yet. And you just brought 25 years in the future. And it's just like, oh yeah. Like you, you know, the character like principal Skinner and you know, the character superintendent Chalmers. Oh yeah. So there's this ridiculous scene where like Skinner's trying to get Chalmers to like him by cooking him dinner and everything goes wrong. And you know, there's like a bunch of like, it's, you know, Skinner almost burns his house down and, you know, it's just Chalmers is like unimpressed with everything he says and he's like questioning him on everything and Skinner is just like sweating. You're like, does that sound funny? I don't know. Like, and then you'd look, it's like, oh, this is like one of the most popular things on the internet. Everyone loves this thing. Is everyone insane? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I don't know. And to a certain extent, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's fair. Yes. <laughs> right? It's, it's a test. You know, oh, do you find this funny? Well, all right, then enter the club and, and, uh, here are the other, you know, people filled with madness similar to yours. <laughs> oh, and it's like most of the people on the internet. It's a very big club. Whew. Thank you. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> so steamed hams uh not only that segment but the entire episode 22 short films about springfield uh season seven episode 21 uh turned 25 years old this week that's why we're talking about it and why other people on the internet are talking about it uh but also we just enjoy any excuse to talk about old simpsons yeah exactly it's a good time yeah but uh, this one tied into, I guess, a greater cultural event uh, and significance of many, many, many other people taking the chance to fete and honor the 25th anniversary of Steen Hams. And uh, just one final note, I did read, I believe it was on IO9 earlier this week, one of the writers contacted, uh, I believe it was uh, Bill Oakley Yep. Uh, about the uh, Steen Hams segment and... 
because he, I guess, had questions about it, and, you know, the writers of that episode, especially the ones of Steamed Hams, they've answered a whole bunch of questions, but they seem quite content to still be answering people's questions about it all these years later, which is... Yeah, Bill Bill Oakley is, like, incredibly approachable on Twitter. Like, it's amazing. Like, he answers everyone. Like, he seems like a super cool guy. Like, uh, another friend of mine actually ans- asked him a question. I I can't for the life of me remember what question it was, but he tweeted at him. He linked me the tweet. I was like, that's cool as hell. That's awesome. Yeah. So one of the writers, I guess, for an article on io9 asked Bill Oakley a question that I guess they had lingering in the back of their head about uh, the steamed hams clip. And uh, the question was, you know, when, when Superintendent Chalmers gets there, he makes the comment that, you know, you know, oh, or Skinner's out, Skinner asks him, oh, you found the place. And, uh, Chalmers re- replies back with something effective. Yes. No thanks to your directions. It was despite your directions. Yes. yes despite your directions. And, uh, then they enter the house and whatnot. And I think at one point Chalmers isn't perhaps entirely aware that, uh, Skinner lives with, with his mother still or whatnot. There's a comment made about that. So, uh, the writer asked Bill Oakley about that, you know, citing the fact that in a previous episode, uh, in an earlier episode in, in the Simpsons, mythos canon that Chalmers actually went to pick up Agnes uh, or not Agnes, pick up Skinner's mom for a date. Yeah. So he would have known where the house was. He wouldn't have needed directions. He'd been there before and knew entirely about the setup. And I think Bill Oakley's response was, you know, I've never been asked that before. Have no response. I'm I'm, I'm looking at the, I think it was, well, they have it here in the AV club. Mm-hmm. I think they're probably just reporting on that, how they were talking about, you know, they do say, um, as it turns out, the line indicating that Chalmers had never been there was not in Bill Oakley's draft. He said, it seems it was added by Greg Daniels, who did the confirming, the conforming of all the segments and put them in order, which is why it's a lunch in the episode, but a dinner in my draft. Uh, the fact that Gary and Agnes had been on a date a few episodes prior likely did not occur to Daniels. The Oakley writes, while we were concerned about some continuity, I think we would have ignored that here to make the joke work. Which, you know, fair enough. I feel like it's also one of those interesting things that, like, they were able to get away with a lot more back then, which is a little bit of a shame because because of internet culture and... You know, everyone being like overall a lot nerdier now. Like, you know, it's, it's definitely a thing where like back, you know, 25 years ago, it was more of like a dirty word to be considered a nerd, right? Like mm-hmm. you didn't want to be like, oh, it's like, oh, I'm not a nerd. I'm not a geek. Like that's so, oh, no, I'm a, I'm a normal person. Nothing like that. Ugh. Like, no, no, I'm normal. See, like, I don't, whatever. Like I don't have a pocket protector, things like that. And you know, there were like, you know, basically caring about the continuity and things like that was, you know, considered a quote unquote nerdy or geeky thing that was like, you know, like who cares? What are you, a nerd? Blah, 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 whatever. But now with the internet and, you know, people being more empowered by like to, you know, by these social groups and stuff that they are a part of, like these large social groups that they're a part of on the internet, I think you know, you end up with people worrying more and more and more about continuity errors and stuff like that, that they don't really happen anymore. And even, even if, you know, ignoring continuity would make a joke work a whole lot better, 
just people don't make those leaps anymore for, you know, for maybe fear of, well, if we do that, like, ah, then someone's going to point out this is a continuity error and we can't really do that. So, eh. But I guess that's another interesting thing about when steamed hams was new, that wasn't even really a concern. Like, clearly, if they're like, ah, yeah, you know, like, we, we, I think we, it occurred to us that it was a continuity error, but, ah, we ignored it because it made the joke work better. You know, who would say that now? Yeah, I think, uh, probably most productions have, uh, some sort of continuity officer, someone to check, uh, and verify things still all fit within the same canon now. Yeah, so, I don't know, but, it's very interesting and yeah, like if you have any questions for Bill Oakley or Josh Weinstein or you know any of the classic Simpsons people, they're all on Twitter and they're super approachable. And they'll gladly talk about their old Simpsons episodes or just the old Simpsons in general too. Yeah. Like that's one of the things I find perhaps uh, most heartening. Uh, one, well, one, they're still around, but two, they're still so willing to talk about it. They don't feel jaded. They don't feel burned out or any sort of animosity towards the Simpsons, you know, towards this property that they put a lot of time into that, uh, you know, maybe they don't want to be, you know, be associated with anymore for whatever reason. No, they're all still super okay with it and super chill to talk about it all. Yeah. So, Steam Dams, the, uh, what the internet has decided is the most memorable segment from 22 short films about Springfield, turning 25 years old this week. And that about wraps up this week's edition of the arcade. We thank you so much for joining us, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. <laughs> that is not true. Now we're just about to get into the show, which is hilarious that we are 21 minutes into this, and, uh, yeah. What can I say? We've got the gift of the gab. Yes. But uh, I suppose we should actually get into, as you said, the show proper, and we will start that off with the ludicrous leadoffs, the segment of the show where we have found some news items that just are an extra special kind of special. They are cut above the other news items we have to talk about here this week, and... Uh, and so one of the recurring themes that we have found through this year, uh, the year of 2021, is that uh, somehow we've become old men and technology has passed us by in a goddamn hurry. Yeah, like not all technology, like we're pretty up to date with a lot of stuff. But every now and then something creeps up on us and it's just like, wait, where did this come from? What the hell is this? You know, like the thing we're specifically talking about and we've spoken a little bit about it. Every single show for the last, what, five, six shows now? It feels like is, it. Is NFTs. And non-fungible tokens. Likely you've heard the name, heard the uh, the acronym used over the past several weeks, uh, if not the past several months. Uh, we spoke, of course, uh, earlier on this year about the $60 million NFT piece of art that was sold at auction at Christie's. Uh, we have spoken about Atari getting into the NFT game, or more specifically, the shell of Atari getting into the, the NFT game with uh, digital assets uh, based around Centipede and whatnot. And we have two more ludicrous leadoffs this week, both of them centered around NFTs, uh, both of them making me feel like an old man, but both of them kind of, well, more specifically the second item, kind of speaking just to the rapid evolution uh, and life cycle of NFTs. The first one is uh, 
a more ridiculous uh, story of a piece of art from an unlikely unlikely source selling for a whole lot of money at auction. Yeah, so this is not the first instance of this, but it's just the latest in the line of ridiculous instances of this is what I think um, is the you know the crux of this. Um, the you know we've we've heard about these NFT pieces of art being sold for a lot of money. You know, in the very, very recent past, um, I can't think of the specific examples, but, you know, there's been a couple where, you know, a piece of art has gone for a ridiculous amount of money, but I don't think one has gone for quite a ridiculous amount of money as this. Well, there was the, the $60 million piece that uh, kind of started oh, everything right. yeah, off, yeah. but, uh, you know... In the, the time since, we haven't really heard of something going in the millions of dollars. If it, if there has been a, a, uh, an NFT going for, uh, selling at auction for millions of dollars, it's escaped our radar. So this is news to us. But in the wake, uh, perhaps the next highest piece of, uh, digital art to sell at auction for millions of dollars would be this one that just recently closed, uh, at auction. It is a portrait done of uh, counter in, uh, former intelligence contractor and uh, American intelligence whistleblower Edward Snowden. Yeah. It's a piece of art that is his image, his uh, his portrait, and it was sold for 5.4 US million US dollars worth of ether. So that's 5.4 million US dollars worth of the cryptocurrency ether. I feel the need to clarify that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not $5.4 million worth of the thing you can, you know, huff on a rag and get knocked out and have, you know, 10 hours of sleep. It's also not worth $5.4 million in dollars. <laughs> it's worth the equivalent of dollars in Ether. Yes. The cryptocurrency, which, you know, may be worth $2 million tomorrow, maybe worth $10 million tomorrow. You know, that's how it goes with cryptocurrencies. It's a wild ride where it, uh, the valuation and, uh, fluctuates and changes on uh, a minute by minute basis. Uh, is it like, is it traded after hours and over weekends or is it uh stick to a more traditional like stock market cycle of Monday through Friday, Monday to Friday through certain hours? I no, it's, it's throughout the day from what I've seen, you know, like I'm no expert, but you know, I got a little tiny bit into the game on, you know, one of these apps. I'm not going to say which app because I'm not, uh, they're not paying me money. In fact, I'm paying them money. So I prefer not to give them free publicity or anything, but, uh, yeah, the, the dollar, like, as opposed to like traditional stocks, which have an opening and closing time, you know, during trading hours during the week, cryptocurrencies go up and down 24 hours a day. Oh, okay. So. so at the time this article yeah. was written, the the amount of ether that uh, this piece of NFT sold for at auction was worth the equivalent of five point four million dollars. Now that being said, uh, at auction, this portrait of Edward Snowden sold for two thousand two hundred twenty four ether. Yeah. So that value is going to change, you know, up and down, good, bad, whatever else, but still. At the time, 5.4 million U.S. dollars worth of ether. 
And it's not just a regular run-of-the-bill portrait of Edward Snowden. The title of the art piece is uh, is called Stay Free. And it is the image of Edward Snor- Snowden formed by citing the... Uh, citing, I believe it's the Espionage, Espionage Act of uh, 1917. Uh, like it's a whole bunch of writing on the, on the art piece, but the negative space is what forms the image of Edward Snowden. Yeah. And of course, Edward Snowden is the whistleblower who brought to light the fact the U.S. government was, uh, using phone surveillance and tapping phones of U.S. citizens for many years in the quote unquote war, war on terror, thanks to the sweeping powers granted to the, uh, U.S. intelligence community by the Patriot Act that was passed in 2002 uh, after the terror attacks of 9-11, which was 20 years ago this year, by the way. Yeah, that's... Uh, Just to make you feel old. Doesn't, that doesn't make me feel really old. No? No, I no, think you're lying. Yeah, I, I am lying. <laughs> if it makes me feel it does old... In fact, it does, in fact, make me feel old. You know, um... Well, what made me feel old was when, you know, it wasn't me who talked to her, but, you know, my partner, her, you know, our, our niece was talking, she's talking to her niece and like, um, she was mentioning how she was learning about 9-11 in school. And then, you know, <laughs> my partner, she was like, oh yeah, like I remember when that happened. And she was like, no, you didn't. That was like in like... 2001. That was like a long time ago. Like, how can you remember that? And we're just like, what the hell are you talking about? I was your age when it happened. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> it was just this, she's like, that made me feel really, really old. I'm like, yeah. And then we both talked about the thing. It's like, yeah, I was in grade 12 when that happened. I remember the day, like how basically every single class, no schoolwork was done. Basically, every class was like, let's talk about the whole, the crazy thing we all just, you know, saw in the news. Like, I, I was watching the live newscast when the second plane hit. It was bananas. <laughs> like, like, you know, like it, it, you know, it was happened earlier on in the day. Like I was, you know, sleeping in because I was a teenager and I didn't have any class in the morning and all that stuff. Anyways, yeah, so. <laughs> I don't need to get into this right now, but yeah, it's the whole, <laughs> anyways, I distinctly remember it happening, but the fact that it's 20 years ago now is like, holy crap, holy crap. <laughs> yep. So, uh, Edward Snowden, uh, again, to bring it all back around was the, uh, uh, contractor working for, I guess, you know, one department of the U S intelligence service saw what was going on, basically copied, pasted onto a memory card. Files he found, leaked it to the press, and then had to get the hell out of Dodge, and he's been living in Russia for the last, what, eight, seven, eight years or something like that? He's officially... It might be, it might be more than that, even. Yeah, initially he was uh, granted asylum, but I think in the time since, he's now become a full, actual, through-and-through through Russian citizen, so uh, it's not as though he can just be uh, uh, renditioned and, you know scooped up in the middle of the night by U.S. forces and taken back to America land, that would cause an international incident. But the proceeds of this auction for this particular NFT, the art piece that is a portrait, a stylized portrait of Edward Snowden, again, 
the ether that is used in whatever value in U.S. funds it is equivalent to will be put forward and given to the Freedom of the Press Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization that develops open source tools for whistleblowers and people in that vein, and also works to shield journalists from state-sponsored hackers and government surveillance. And so, yeah, Edward Snowden has led the organization as its president since 2017. Yeah, so I mean, at least the money is going towards a good cause, thankfully. It's not just like, you know, lining some rich jerk's pockets for you know, like no reason. Uh, true. So it's uh, hopefully going to be used for more good to expose uh, and shine a light on some more uh, bad things that are happening out there in the world being done through the use of NFTs. Now, that is one side of the NFT coin. Let's go to the other side of the NFT coin for a moment here the proverbial <laughs> NFT coin. And in, yeah. the, in the past weeks, as you and I have spoken about NFTs here on this program, we've spoken about the just rapid pace that they have uh, come up in popularity and the ridiculous evolution they have taken from something that seems to come out of nowhere to something that uh, is a medium for which multi-millions of dollars change hands to then being a a, a form, a medium for sad old actors like Atari to try and make a coin. And now uh, we are to the point where it's not just sad old actors like the shell of Atari trying to cash in and make a coin. Uh, what feels like people's sad old uncles are trying to use NFTs as a medium to try and make a few bucks because they see other people making a few bucks as well. Yeah. So it's not a thing I've ever heard before. Or was even really aware of, but apparently about 40 years ago, there was an 80s hit song called Pac-Man Fever. You know, it was just kind of one of these like bad flash in the pan one hit wonder songs that just cashed in on a very narrow cultural, you know, thing that was happening at the time. And when you listen back to it now, it's like, oh, so it's a little bit cringy and it's kind of like, you know, it's it's exactly that. It's just like a one-hit wonder nonsense, like not a thing that you would want to l regularly listen to. Like it's, you know, you know the thing I'm – the type of thing I'm talking about. Um, but, you know, it's it was still wholesome and catchy and like a little bit of a hit at um, at the time. But because, you know, we're in 2021, one of like the weirdest years in human recent history um, – the the culmination of it's probably the culmination of both the you know these NFT things becoming so popular so fast with so much money being involved in them you know so quickly and maybe a little bit of cabin fever and people like you know you know like sort of like to to use like a an outdated reference like you know in old cartoons when um like people like the, the characters in the cartoons would be maybe stuck in a cabin together kind of thing, like looking at each other if they were hungry, like, you know, looking at their leg and it would turning into like, you know, some various like well-prepared food item, like, you know, a fully prepared steak dinner or like uh things like that. Like so, a roast turkey leg or something. Yeah. So it might be that type of thing <laughs> that led people to think, Hey, 2021 seems to be when we should bring back the Pac-Man fever song. Rewrite the lyrics in, you know, positive reference to NFTs and then sell that song as an NFT. 
And yes, this is a thing that has happened. You know, you can freely stream the song on YouTube, YouTube, excuse me. And it's a terrible song. Like the, the dislike to like ratio is hilarious. Like, like it, it's, it only had about 1500 views from what I saw, but you know, three people liked it and 15 people disliked it. So not a good ratio. And it's called Nifty Fever. Cause I guess like, you know, they're looking at NFT, the acronym, and they're pronouncing it Nifty. Um, so they took Pac-Man Fever, called it Nifty Fever. And on April 22nd, uh, five NFT versions of this song will be auctioned off via Songvest. Uh, as the site's first NFT offering. No, no, don't follow up question to me what Songvest is. I have no idea. <laughs> but yeah, everyone's trying to get a piece of this NFT action. Um, by any means necessary, even the worst lazy, terrible means like this. Yeah, I think, uh, we have reached the point where, uh, you know, people's parents are now getting in on the, uh, the NFT action because, oh, they think it's cool and might get a few dollars out of it. So does, will this be the death nail for NFTs as a medium of transactions? But I, I don't know, but the, the thing that kind of amuses me about this though is that, yes, people are, you know, the comments and the like to like, the like to dislike ratio are funny, but, are the lyrics in this song any worse than the original, really? Like, when you think about it, at least it's in the same terrible spirit of what type of song it is, right? True, and it's, uh yeah, it's cashing in on a uh, popular technology craze of this time, and 40 years ago it was cashing, on, cashing in on a popular technology craze of that time, which at that time was Pac-Man. And this time it's NFTs, Although I want to say this is worse because they haven't written an entirely new song. They've literally just dusted off the old song and replaced some words in the original lyrics. Um, like the, the song opens up in the first verse. I got a wallet full of coins. So I'm headed to the blockchain. I'm going to check out all the markets and maybe sell a few things I've made. So literally starts off. I got a wallet full of coins. That is how the original Pac-Man Fever song started off, because Pac-Man was an arcade game. You needed coins and quarters to play. So I'm headed to the blockchain when that second line uh, in the original Pac-Man Fever song went, uh, you know, so I'm headed to the arcade. Literally, they replaced one word in this new version within the first two lines. Yeah. So this feels like a horribly lazy attempt to cash in on the NFT craze done by Buckner and Garcia, who are the original people who did the Pac-Man Fever song from the 80s. God help us all. (laughs) So the auction for this, if you are interested in it, good on you. You clearly have too much money um, or just have too much crypto and uh, don't know what to do with it all. Uh, but the auction for this uh, will be live uh, and be happening for seven days. And if you manage to score one of these five versions of Nifty Fever, uh, you'll get the song that is, you know, part of whatever you're paying. But you can also listen to it for free. We link to it on our website, thearcadeshow.com. It's hosted on YouTube. This Nifty Fever song is. So you'll get a copy of the song. You'll also get a custom gold record award with handwritten lyrics 
likely on a piece of loose leaf with some sort of coffee stain on it. <laughs> and a piece of old stale chewing gum. Uh, and a Zoom meet and greet with Buckner himself. <laughs> oh boy. So, you know what would be really funny to me is if at the end of seven days, nobody buys any five of these NFTs of Nifty Fever. <laughs> I mean, given the fact that, you know, there was 1,500 views and only three likes and 15 dislikes. So for every 100 people that watched the video, one person disliked it. And for every, what, 300 people that watched the video? No, every 500 people that watched the video, one person liked it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is a very good chance that this is the case. I... I, my fingers are crossed, but again, the the world has uh, disappointed me so many times with these sorts of things, so <laughs> I'm not going to hold out hope. Uh, that being said, in the press release that uh, was put out heralding this announcement, because there needed to be such a thing, Buckner himself uh, said of this, quote, 40 years after Pac-Man fever, there's another craze taking the world by storm. I'm excited to release Nifty Fever, a modern update on the hit, end quote. So, yeah. yeah, it's a modern update that uh, feels just uh, horribly slapdash, like almost a uh, quick flip job on a uh, piece of real estate, like a house or whatnot, where you can tell that there was it was done quickly with only, say, one coat of paint and just a little, little bit of plaster fixing a, a, a hole in the wall or something. <laughs> yeah. And they're turning around, turning around and, ooh, maybe they put some uh, some quick uh, click, you know, click plank vinyl flooring to make it look like hardwood floors and like get it, get it on the market real quick so we can cash in on the market when it's red hot right now. Yeah. Yeah. To tie in two crazy trends going on between the NFTs and the real estate market in many locations throughout North America. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's what's happening. Uh, people with too much money don't know what to spend it on and other people are just trying to cash in shamelessly. So, well, don't worry. The the shameless cashing in makes it a bubble. And as we know about bubbles historically, they all burst. This is a true fact, and my fingers are crossed for that to happen. And just the fact that the uh, Buckner and Garcia were wading in with their very uh, hollow, shabby attempt at a novelty song themed around NFTs and the, the current craze born out of NFTs kind of gave me the the sense and feeling that this was almost like when people's parents started joining Facebook. Yeah. And then the younger people who had initially joined Facebook as early adopters kind of moved on to other platforms or or whatnot or just the the their view of Facebook started to change. Yeah. Exactly. And that's that's kind of how I feel with NFTs right now with this story about Nifty Fever. So yeah. 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 <laughs> but let us move on to some legitimate business news, not some shoddy, uh, you know, not entirely understood, uh, you know, technology craze that is an acronym that could be here today, gone tomorrow. Instead, let's talk about some, uh, some companies and business people who seem to have staying power, which is aided by the fact that they just completed a ridiculous round of venture funding. Well, I guess not even venture funding since they're 
they're beyond a venture now. They are uh, just a company that is in operation, a successful company in operation, and continuing to, uh, uh, I guess, the various rounds of funding. Uh, Epic Games announced this week that they they have cobbled together another billion dollars in their most recent round of funding, with a fifth of that, $200 million uh, precisely, coming from Sony, uh, which apparently will uh, just integrate the two companies of uh, Epic Games and Sony just that much further. And Epic Games has said that they're going to use this funding, and it's necessary uh, for this funding to be used for the or for their long-term vision of something called the metaverse. Yeah. Like, I don't know if that means it's just a Fortnite thing. Like I'm not really entirely sure, but it doesn't sound like it. I think it's just sort of like what they're calling maybe all of their collective properties as Epic. Cause part of the quote from uh, Tim Sweeney, who by the way is still the controlling shareholder of Epic Games, who with this latest, you know, infusion of a billion dollars, you know, makes them worth $28.7 billion. And as the controlling shareholder, meaning that he's got at least 50% of the shares, 51% of the shares, sorry, that makes his personal net worth about $14 billion if he decides to get out and sell it. Um, but what he said here was, we're grateful to our new and exciting, new and existing investors who support our vision for Epic and the metaverse. Their investment will help accelerate our work around building connected social experiences in Fortnite, Rocket League, and Fall Guys, while empowering game developers and creators with Unreal Engine, Epic Online Services, and the Epic Games Store. So I guess just the entire social experience between, you know, all of their big games, as well as, you know, how other developers can interact with that overarching social experience using Unreal Engine, Epic Online Services, and the store. That is, I guess, what they're calling the metaverse, which is kind of cool, I guess. It, it is cool, and it sounds like it's uh, a bit more... There, there's a bit more to it, a bit more substance, perhaps, than just a shared universe of characters or items from different properties appearing in other games, all under the same Epic Games umbrella. Yeah. Like, it's uh, they're aiming to create a more uh, co- cohesive, more robust experience between everything Epic Games related. Yeah, which, you know, good on them. Absolutely. It's uh, an intriguing idea, and uh, we've sung the praises, uh, you know, a number of times of it, of Epic Games here on this program for their attempts to be more developer-friendly, be more, I guess, consumer-friendly with their approaches towards uh, agreements and contracts for the Unreal Engine, their their agreements and contracts for the Epic Game Store. And it's funny that this story came out when it did, because it came out uh, eh, earlier in the week, uh, in the wake of stories that had come out, perhaps leaked out by some Apple attorneys, as the discovery process is ongoing ahead of the Epic Games versus Apple trial that is set to start on May 8th, documents being filed, blah, 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 both sides requesting information from the other. And in light of that, news was leaked out that the Epic Game Store loses like hundreds of millions of dollars a year so far and isn't projected to be an actual profitable venture until I think it was like 2023 or 2025. I heard 2027 is what I or heard. Or even 2027. That's not impossible too, but 
I knew it was something that ended in an odd number. So and also, well, it was also I think Apple was even more pessimistic with their claims as well because I think it was a financial analyst from Apple or something. Obviously, it was maybe a little bit like them trying to, you know, spoil their name a little bit during the whole proceedings that are currently happening. But I, I want to say it was twenty thirty four is the thing I heard from that as well, which you know. That might be a little bit too far out to like even predict. Like, like, is that a fair assessment to make? Like, I don't know. That seems a little bit insane to me, but you know, 20, you know, in the like mid to late 2020s, I think is not unreasonable to say, right? Like, so yeah. No, but I, I think like, go on, but I think it's, it's also kind of like Uber, right? Like where I think maybe the value comes from the disruptive quality of the company and like what the company can do to the industry rather than what the company is actually physically worth at the moment. And it's like a long-term play. So I know a lot of investors don't like, like that. that's not for every investor, but for the investors that are on board with that, they're all on board. So yeah. Uh, look at uh, Tesla as an example. Tesla as a yes. company almost went bankrupt many times before, you know, becoming the darling of the stock market over really the past year and having the share price shoot up to like $700, if not more. Yeah, exactly. So, you you know, for these sorts of industries, you need a lot of capital if you're trying to disrupt something as Tesla was, as Uber is, as Epic Games is, you need a lot of capital to give yourself a lot of runway to basically change a very slow-moving ship and turn it around. Yeah, exactly. Which is customer behavior. So uh, $200 million, as I said, of this billion dollars of funding came from Sony. They're not the only ones to invest. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different venture capital companies or firms that were involved in here. Uh, the only name that stands... Names that stand out to me being BlackRock and also Franklin Templeton. But another name that stood out to me, and uh, you, Dennis, of course, will have your ears and eyes perk up when you hear this one, but one of the investors in this round of funding was the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan Board. <laughs> yeah. So if you're you know not from Canada and you're wondering what the hell that is, it's literally a pension plan that has a board of governors, as most large pension plans do, collects the funds from its uh, members who all pay into the pensions and has to manage the money, but also has to find out where to get returns to keep generating revenue to fund this pension plan because there's many tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people drawing down and drawing from this pension plan. So it's got to be constantly refilled. So... They have a lot of money at their disposal, but they also have uh, a lot of demands on it. So Ontario Teachers Pension Plan is in this, which is a hell of a thing. Yeah. A little bit surprising to me. Like, it's a little bit surprising to me that a pension plan would basically do what is effectively a bet at this point. Like, as opposed to Tesla, which, you know, was a bet until it was proven, like, I don't know, like, that seemed like, I'm sure that there would, you know, that must not have been a unanimous vote <laughs> if that was, you know, assuming it went to a vote of some kind. So, like. 
yeah, how much now we don't know how much each company went in for or how much uh ownership stakes they have in Epic Games after this latest round of funding. I'd imagine many of them were already involved in Epic Games through previous funding rounds and maybe just, you know, gave a bit more. Uh if Sony was in for 200 million, that means like a dozen other companies uh contributed a sum total of 800 million. So that's fairly even, you know, assuming it's evenly spread, it's actually not that large a contribution for each firm, so uh, make of that what you will. But the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, the former owners of the Toronto Maple Leafs, now investors in Epic Games. Yeah. Which, yes, they used to own the Maple Leafs and uh, the Air Canada Centre and you know everything to do with uh, basically Toronto sports. And then they sold out and made a tidy profit, uh, I think, like seven to ten years ago. Yeah, I seem to recall that. Yeah, so nevertheless, Epic Games, well-funded. And even in light of uh, Apple's accountants and leaking of information about the Epic Games Store losing hundreds of millions of dollars, Tim, Tim Sweeney actually, or or if not Tim Sweeney, then other people associated with uh, Epic Games came out and said, yeah, we know it loses money. That's the idea. We budgeted and planned for this. They, they have... Yeah. Plans and desires for it beyond just it being an immediate profit maker. But uh, nevertheless, we'll move on to other business uh, slash gaming related stories. Uh, something that is likely to be a profit maker right off the hop uh, is this new item that uh, was recently released and announced or announced and released by Microsoft. Uh, and it's likely to be a profit maker right off the hop because of the ridiculous price point. So if you... Uh, are into console gaming, you probably have a headset that uh, you use with your console, probably a good quality headset. You want some something that's, you know, soft and easy on your ears, gives you good quality audio through it. You know, maybe you like a bit more bass, you like a bit more volume, whatever the case might be. You've got a headset, and there's a good chance you might have a wireless headset because cords, well, who needs those these days? Yeah, exactly. So Microsoft has uh, recently shown off and announced a their own uh, pair of wireless headphones, but these are premium wireless headphones. It's uh, the this is a product done uh, and developed between Microsoft as well as Bang and Olufsen, and what they have come up with is called the BioPlay Portable Wireless Headphones for Xbox. And when I say they're premium, that means they come with a premium price. Yeah, so, you know, if we, well, <laughs> I don't know any like slick way of like comparing it. We'll just come out and say it. They're $4.99 US dollars. Like not $4.99, $499 in US dollars. So like just a dollar shy of $500 in US funds. That's going to get you a pair of premium wireless headphones. Yeah. Premium. So these are apparently the first product uh, that are coming from the Design for Xbox uh, limited series program, which Microsoft has said, quote, communicates how closely we have worked with our partners on each product to test quality, performance, safety, and security with all Xbox hardware and or X- Xbox hardware experiences, end quote. So, Sure. Okay, uh, they've been announced they will be released globally on April 29th. They'll come in uh, different colors depending on what part of the world you are in. And they are in the press release. 
they say, quote, uh, these headphones offer a sophisticated aesthetic and can be used in any situation, end quote. And they also offer easy access to gaming features like customized game slash chat balance, mute and volume on the headset itself, or from the Bang and, Bang and Olufsen audio app. <laughs> yeah. So... I'm just going to come right out, uh, right out and say I'm not going to be buying a pair of these. No, I mean, like, I mean, granted, they're probably really good, but yeah, I mean, even as someone who's like, you know, been somewhat involved in like, you know, audio related stuff over the years as a musician who's done recording and stuff, like, I just, I don't know, there's something about me where I'm like, I can't justify spending like more than two, three hundred dollars on a really good pair of headphones. Like, like, I don't know. Like it, that seems crazy to me still. Like, I don't know. I, I, but I know other people have different, you know, thresholds for, you know, their own gear acquisition syndrome, which, you know, you, you develop over the, over time. <laughs> You know, for whatever things, but for me, it's not headphones. It's not premium headphones, thankfully, because I would be a lot poorer of a man if it was. <laughs> uh, it's true. So with these headphones, charging apparently only takes three hours, and uh, they offer 12 hours of battery life when using Xbox Wireless, Bluetooth, and active noise cancellation, uh, plus then 24 hours of battery life if you're only using Bluetooth and active noise cancellation. So, yeah, they apparently com- these headphones combine Scandinavian Scandinavian design values with the world of gaming. Sure, the real TLDR here is that they're five hundred dollars US. Yeah, which is the price, the same price as an Xbox Series X. Yeah, so so <laughs> it's not even like some bundle you can. I mean, uh, there's there's a part of me that thinks. Maybe this won't be the the gangbusters seller, but I've also been crazy surprised in the past. I have no idea what could be a gangbuster seller. Ooh, to make them even more premium, these headphones have calfskin leather on the exterior headband and bamboo fiber textile on the inside band, and the cushions on the top of the headband help prevent fatigue and head pain from long use. (sighs) I mean, to make it more premium or to kind of like raise the ire of more people. I don't know why you would like, I don't know. I don't know why anyone would go near anything involving leather, let alone like, you know, calf leather. Like that's, that seems insane to me these days with like, you know, with what, you know, anyways. Yeah. So premium quality content, Maybe it's probably really high quality, but like every, every type of thing has that threshold where it's like, is the, like, is the jump from like $200 headphones to $500 headphones, is it like twice as good? And is it worth twice the amount of price or is it just a little bit better? Like, I don't know. There's always that thing to think about when you're about to go into like premium territory with something like this, right? Because I, I can see a lot of buyer's remorse with this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, once you're in the range of something costing as much as the console you want, 
um, that, that's, uh, that's an eye-opening experience. Now, obviously, given the price point, these are for people who don't have to ask those questions, who don't have to worry about the fact that they're spending potentially upwards of $1,000 to get a console and a pair of headphones, a pair of premium headphones, super premium, premium headphones. So... I am not one of those people, at least not yet. Um, <laughs> if you are out there and this is something that is uh, on your radar screens now, let us know your thoughts on why uh, this would be on your uh, to-purchase list when they come out towards the end of the month. You can email us, email us info at thearcadeshow.com. But we'll move on from there to, uh, I think, one last news item uh, to get to this week, uh, and that is... Uh, uh, a bit of disappointing, if not unsurprising news about a product that uh, I know both Dennis and I are intrigued by. It's a little item that you may not have heard about or maybe you just kind of heard of in passing. It is a product, a handheld gaming product that is going to be coming from the people at Analog. Now, Analog is a company that does new, high quality, uh, if you want to say it, you could, premium versions of old systems. Yeah, they have their own version of the NES that plays existing NES games, but it's a lot better. Can output in HDMI, has Bluetooth controllers, that kind of thing. I think they've done the same for the Super Nintendo. And last year, they announced that they were working on something called the Analog Pocket, which would be essentially their version of a Game Boy, but just a hell of a lot better. It could play, you know, very original Game Boy cartridges, Game Boy Advance, Game Boy Color right there in the slot, but then also have adapters uh, that you could purchase separately to play Game Gear games, uh, as well as other things like Atari Lynx, Neo Geo Pocket, uh, and things of that nature. And then would also have a dock where you could plug in the portable cartridge to this device and output it to a TV screen similar to a Switch. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, this device that was slated to come out this year, uh, uh, I think it was earlier this, this year, uh, was pushed back once and has now been pushed back a second time, but uh, by several many months. So it was yeah. originally set to come out in May of this year, but has now been pushed back to October instead. And it looks like the culprit is COVID once again. Yeah, big surprise. Big, huge surprise there. Also, interestingly enough, I, I was curious, so I just took a quick look on their website. Literally almost, like I would say 95% of their available products are out of stock and or discontinued on their website at this point. The only things you can get are um, their wireless Super NT controllers, you know, their Super Nintendo controllers. Mm-hmm. Or their um, wireless Mega or 8-bit Do M30 controllers, which is for their Mega SG, which is, you know, their Sega Genesis. So controllers, not even cables or anything are available. Like, out of all of the various things, like, I think it's literally taking a quick look through their – scroll through the, their product page. Five items are the only ones that are not sold out. And, uh Yeah. Everything is sold out. So these are popular things, and I'm assuming that a lot of the out-of-stock stuff is also due to COVID. So, yeah, I'm assuming it's just like an across-the-board thing for them. 
Uh, I would imagine so, which at this point in time, that has really got to suck for them too as a company, having only five products available for sale at this time. That's not a lot of money that's coming in. And they're not products that like look particularly useful outside of like, if you already own analog items, like, like I, I don't, like, I mean, I, I might be mistaken, but like even like these, these like classic controllers that are available, like, oh, I, okay, fair enough. Like if, if you do have a Super Nintendo, at least like these do plug into a real Super Nintendo. So it basically gives wireless functionality to Super Nintendo. Which is kind of cool. Same thing with Sega Genesis, but like, actually, interestingly enough, when I did click on the buy now link, um, they're both currently unavailable on, you know, the, the link that they link to, which is an Amazon link. So these might as well be also out of, out of stock. So everything's out of stock. You can't buy a single thing from their website. Well, ain't that a kick in the teeth? Yeah, it very much seems to be. So, uh, if you're someone in the analog offices, uh, gotta be sweating up a storm every time you come into work, uh, and fretting anytime somebody turns on the lights in the office or, you know, flushes more than once in the bathroom or whatnot, cause that's, that's money going out and you don't have yeah. a product to sell to bring money in. Exactly. Uh, in the official statement that uh, Analog put out, uh, when they announced the delay of the Analog Pocket going from May to October of this year, they said, quote, The current global state of affairs continues to create supply chain challenges outside of our control. There have been sudden and severe electrical component shortages, as well as logistical issues leading to a domino effect of challenges for nearly everyone in the industry. We're working hard to get Pocket out as fast as possible, and we appreciate your understanding and patience, end quote. So the analog pocket is going to be a popular item. I think it was February, January, January or February of this year that analog opened up some pre-orders and they sold through in like five minutes. Like, yeah, the, the, the pre-order demand was ridiculous and upset a lot of people that there wasn't more available. But as the months have gone on in this year, people are increasingly realizing just what a pain in the ass it is to get anything anywhere these days. Yeah, very much so. Especially if it's uh, something to do with uh, electronics or technology, given all the component short or not all the, but the, the many and various component shortages that are being experienced by literally every company uh, who is in the electronics or digital space, because they all seem to run on very similar parts. Yeah. So as that story develops and uh, we get more of an idea once the analog pocket will officially release, we'll bring you that news because uh, there's a good chance you will be interested in it. Uh, we are interested in it. It, uh, I mean, it looks like a really nifty machine. Oh, and you can, uh, I believe, use it to program and uh, uh, if not program games. Uh, oh, you could use it to uh, program and design MIDI music too. Yeah. I mean, that... If there was a, like, to, for the, the nano loop software, if, if I'm not mistaken, what it was called. Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, it looked like it was a really cool unit and I was considering it, if anything else, just because of like the, the switch like capabilities of being able to take, you know, classic, um, handheld games and play them on the big screen in, you know, full upscaled properly HDMI glory. 
like a modern person instead of just lording over your small old Game Boy, uh, Game Boy Original, Game Boy Color, Game Boy Advance, whatever it might be, or having yeah. to rig something up using the old Super Game Boy. <laughs> yep. Or even if the, uh, if you had, uh, the Game Boy, uh, a Game Boy Advance adapter that could plug in and connect to your, uh, GameCube. Which I do. You're a smart man to have one. Absolutely. I also have a super gay boy. Like, <laughs> it occurs to me now that I might have too much, you know, basically crap just in boxes lying around <laughs> that I never look, that are never use or anything. So that might be th- something to consider. Oh, I don't Anyways. know. Don't want to get rid of that. You, you might need it. it. Might be useful one day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or never- or it's. Or it's money burning a hole in my pocket. Who, who knows? Uh, that's true too. Uh, nevertheless, though, those are, you know, old items for a different day, but we won't be talking about them, uh, at this current moment because instead we will take this time to talk about some other old things celebrating milestone anniversaries. Yes, friends, we are now turning our attention to the blast from the past, the segment of the show where we take some minutes before we depart with you and you depart with us to fetch some pieces of entertainment that are celebrating milestone anniversaries. We we have two items for you this week. One of them is a television show. One of them is a video game. And we cannot differentiate between the older or younger of the two because both of them are precisely 10 years old. Yeah, I mean, maybe we can talk about the TV show first. Now, the TV show, this is an interesting thing. Mike the Legend never watched the TV show at all. It's true. I, um, I have, uh, I've only seen snippets online. I have general ideas of what happened, but I, uh, that's as far as I know. That's the, that's the extent of my knowledge. So, uh, I'm just going to wheel back from the microphone here and just kind of let you, uh, take it. It's all yours. So the television show we're talking about is Game of Thrones, which, um, yeah, it debuted 10 years ago and it ran until the 19th of May on 2019. In 2019, I should say. Uh, very weird arc that the show took. Many people, it was basically the sole focus of culture for about eight years. Like, it was the biggest thing in, like, top of mind, like, in the office. Like, if you were working an office job or whatever, if you weren't watching Game of Thrones, you were missing out on some heavy water cooler talk. You know, the ne- the day after the episode, you know, was released. And, you know, you would theorize about things and everything. And I would say for the first seven seasons, it basically had everyone on the edge of their seats, myself included. You know, I was one of those people with this show. You know, normally I would be the type of person that would kind of like catch up on a season of a thing. But like for fear of actual spoilers and hearing people talk about things, I had to kind of keep up with it like as it came out. And just watch it. So I was, you know, a part of the conversation at least. And for the first seven seasons of the show, it ran for eight seasons. For the first seven seasons of the show, I think everyone was on the edge of their seat the whole time wondering what's going to happen. And it was an amazing show. The problem happened when the books ran out, like, but the story wasn't done, which is sort of like a big issue that, you know, people who were fans of the book series for like the last like 25, 30 years 
however long Game of Thrones has been, or it's not even called Game of Thrones, for as long as the Song of Fire and Ice series has been around, um, have been kind of worried because, you know, George R. R. Martin, he's not a young man, and he still has, like, the last, I think, one or two book, like, I think it's the last book to write, but, you know, they basically, he, he gave the, the people, like, the, the people who wrote the TV series, the major plot points he wanted to hit, and then was just like, okay, it's in your hands for the TV show now. I need to, you know, like, I'm not going to finish this book anytime soon, blah, blah, blah. Apparently he's writing it now, and it will probably shake down a little bit differently than the TV series. But anyways, the biggest problem was that, that, you know, they didn't really have books to work off of anymore, and they were kind of flying a little bit blind. And I don't know if that's specifically the reason. I think there is a whole bunch of other reasons that went into it, but the eighth season they 100% dropped the ball. It went from being basically the with the run up of the first 7 seasons to be one of if not it definitely in the pantheon of let's say top 5 TV shows of all time. Right up there with like The Wire and Breaking Bad and like all these other shows that are like highly highly feted. And then they ruined it all in the 8th season. Everything fell apart, the pacing was different, they did weird character moves. They kind of revealed stuff way faster than the show normally went in like, and they basically removed all of like the subtlety that the show was known for and started hitting people over the head with like, you know, plot hammers. And it was the cultural phenomenon that happened with Game of Thrones is very also interesting because it was everywhere and then nowhere. And now people basically don't even talk about it anymore because of how poorly received the last season was. It was like, you, you had a great thing and you threw it right in the garbage. That's it. Yeah, the collective fandom, uh, perhaps for the first se- several seasons is still there, but, uh, its existence in pop culture a- as being like a relevant, uh, touchstone, uh, seems to have been snuffed out. Yeah. Like, Quickly snuffed out. Uh, I just have the episode guide pulled up here on Wikipedia, you know, to give me a a sense, uh, an idea of things, and also to give a a sense and idea of things to you, the listeners out there as well. So we're talking about it because the first episode of Game of Thrones aired April 17th, 2011, 10 years ago. Hard to believe, considering, as you said, uh, uh, Game of Thrones was a cultural, you know, touchstone for years and years and years, for about seven, eight years there. So it's hard to think, and you may not realize that it started ten years ago, but it did. And it started off ten episodes in season one, and the average viewing audience uh, measured in was measured around 2.52 million viewers for the uh, average viewership of season one. Compare that to the average viewership in season six, which was 7.69 million viewers. So it tripled yeah. in the course of uh, five, six years. Yeah, and the last episode um, had almost 14 million viewers. 
which granted 14 million you might think oh that's not a lot like uh if you are aware of high viewership high viewership numbers for things like the super bowl or perhaps the last episode of seinfeld or mash or things like that those you know you're getting close to 75 you know almost 100 million viewers in those ranges so you think 14 million or you hear 14 million and you might think oh, that's that's not really a lot comparatively and you're right it's not but HBO is a premium cable channel that people have to pay a lot of money for. Also, that does not take into account the likely other millions of illegal streams that were happening of the episodes as they were being aired. That's true, too, uh, because this was the most uh, streamed, torrented, whatever uh, uh, show for basically that entire seven, eight year period. And HBO and Time Warner Media did their best to go around with a banhammer to all the various sites, but there's only so much you can do. Yeah. So I've been told by other people previously when this uh, show Game of Thrones was running that I I would enjoy it. I would like it. It's uh, there. There's boobs and violence and a lot of gore and death uh, and you know there'd be. Those would be things up my alley and whatnot. I've uh, just never come around to it. Like, I do genuinely think you would probably enjoy it, but I I have a hard time. Like, I don't actually know. Like, one of these days, I feel like I want to go back and rewatch it just to verify that the eighth season was as bad as it was. But it felt very, like, quickly done, which was not... It was not what the show was normally known for. Like, and even if you look on Wikipedia, I think like, yeah, like the, the first six seasons each had 10 episodes and that felt to be what the pace of the show was used to. Like, like that's the pace that everyone was used to for the show. Like a whole season's worth of stuff happening over 10 episodes, like stuff was really doled out very carefully. And like, even if you go back and rewatch episodes, like you notice things like, Oh yeah, they did say that. Holy crap. <laughs> and it was like, like they would plant seeds that wouldn't really grow into like anything for like two seasons even. But then if you look at the episode count on Wikipedia, season seven, like I think they were just trying to wrap things up faster because, you know, production values were going way up and the actors suddenly were like, well, we're the most watched actors in the world right now. We deserve more pay, which, you know, fair enough, but also like HBO had the money and they were making the money. So like obviously pay up, but yeah, whereas the first six seasons had 10 episodes, season seven had seven and season eight had six. So they really kind of squished, you know, 10 episodes worth of stuff into seven and then eight or into like seven and then six episodes, which, you know, was like, huh? Like now granted, like it was only ever supposed to be seven seasons and arguably, you know, the, they were trying to, you know, do like, they ended up splitting it into two seasons because there was too much stuff, but because there was so much stuff, I think they still should have spaced it out even further because the pacing was off and like some of the, some character moves were like very strange, but overall, like the first six seasons, like, like I, it's like chef's kiss, like really amazing television, like really good storytelling and really good. But then, 
Yeah, I don't know. Like, it's it's very strange what they did in the last couple of seasons. Like, yeah. So as a viewer, uh, well, I should say, as, as someone who has never watched it, uh, and you recommend, and as you said, you believe it's something I would enjoy as a television program, would I have a satisfying experience were I to only ever watch the first six seasons and just kind of omit the last two, which you've said are kind of a different experience, especially the last six episodes that go in uh, different directions and wrap things up pretty hastily. Could- like, no, and that's the problem, because, like, everything is about, like, stringing you along and leaving you wondering, well, what the hell's going to happen? There has to be a huge payoff for all of this. And arguably, like, yeah, there are huge payoffs, and there are satisfying payoffs, and there are there are satisfying good things that do happen in the last couple of seasons, but overall, it's still like, I don't know. I need to go back and rewatch it. Like, I think my mind is still clouded by like the initial shock of like how hasty everything did seem at the time. I don't know. And this too, I, I dare say Game of Thrones might be one of the last uh, television series that, uh, well, well, uh, programs that aired on television that had everyone glued to their seats week seats week after week and and just you know had people talking about it through the course of the week leading up and anticipating the the episode the following sunday uh whereas now i think uh, when that happens it, or and happens in future it's probably just going to be all streaming services yeah but streaming services are getting a little bit wise to this because as we've seen now like with you know the mandalorian and things on disney plus um and I think, you know, I've seen shows on Netflix do this as well. They are actually starting to dole out episodes for certain TV series on a week by week basis. But, you know, I don't know what degree of that is because of licensing with other television stations and stuff still. Or if it literally is just to like create a little bit of buzz on the internet for a bit where people, you know, getting hyped about this, you know, things like, but the Mandalorian, like, you know, I did see, like, as new episodes were being released week by week with The Mandalorian, I would see people posting about it and talking about it on social media and stuff. So, yeah. I think it also is a way to slow the digestion of the show uh, so you don't burn through and consume it as much. Obviously, you can't if you're not getting all 10 episodes or whatnot at once. Uh, but it's becomes less disposable that way, too. Yeah, exactly. Which is uh, a complaint you and I have uh, aired on the show previously that, you know, content is now more disposable than ever, especially when you can just watch and burn through, you know, an entire season of something, 10, 20 episodes of a show on your streaming service in a couple days, and then you just move on to the next thing. There's no staying power uh, for that series you just watched. Yeah, exactly. So, it, yeah, I don't know. It's... uh yeah, I don't want to say it's, you know, from a bygone time because, you know, it did still, it only ended a couple of years ago at this point. But yeah, it's, uh, still very interesting. It is indeed. And it, uh, was, uh, one side of a uh, good quality content coin. And we'll flip to the perhaps, uh, very opposite side of the, uh, good quality content coin. Something that came out on April 19th. Again, 10 years ago on 2011, or April 19th, 2011, 
uh, is a game that was released for the PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, uh, PC platforms, as well as Mac platforms, is a game that was a sequel that was a puzzle game, but was a puzzle game that had uh, one of the best developed senses of humor I've ever seen in a video game, and it is the last great Portal game perhaps we will ever see. It is Portal 2. Yeah, also the last Portal game we've ever seen. True. <laughs> um, but also, like, just to clarify, when you say two sides of the quality coin, both of the, both sides of the coin are, represent that they're good quality. They're just on the different spectrum of, like, where the quality comes from. So, you know, it goes from TV to video games, like, arguably, like, a passive experience to an interactive experience. And also both, from both. fantasy to futuristic. Yeah, exactly. Like science fiction. Um, Portal 2, one of the very rare occasions, I think, where – actually, it's not super rare, but it's uncommon where the sequel to a thing is vastly superior to the original thing. Oh, by leaps while and the, bounds. While the original thing is still incredible – like Portal still felt almost like a tech demo in comparison to Portal 2. So like I actually think it might have been vaguely a tech demo just kind of like for like a fun concept that they came up with when using like the Half-Life 2 engine because it was originally released, you know, as part of a, the Orange Box bundle uh which, you know, bundled up Half-Life 2 with Half-Life 2, you know, episode 1 and episode 2. And, uh, I believe, uh, oh, what was it called? The, uh, Team Fortress 2. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Along with, you know, with Portal. And, you know, it was, it introduced like some wacky game mechanics, you know, the Portal mechanic, you know, was led to some very difficult, but very satisfying puzzles to, uh, to solve, you know, and it like, also very good sense of humor in the original Portal game, but it was very much amped up in the second game when they, and they also like really expanded on the story of, you know, the whole universe. They basically did confirm in Portal 2 that actually it's in the same universe as Half-Life 2, which was very cool and interesting how they did it. You know, whereas like, you know, Half-Life 2 is focused on the Black Mesa company and like their, their attempts to, you know, essentially create portals, but then they basically accidentally rip the fabric of <laughs> space time open by introducing, you know, all these like aliens from this other dimension. Spoiler alert, by the way. I don't think that's really a spoiler alert. Stuff is kind of like, this stuff happens very early on in the game. So, you know, uh, that's sort of what Half-Life was based on, but Portal 2 was like a rival company called um Aperture uh, Labs. A Aperture Aperture Labs, yeah, that was like, you know, basically like you know, rather than like some shadowy organization of like on like some government type level, it was basically like a rich like wacky like Ted Turner type like independently wealthy billionaire Cave Johnson founded his company and he, he had his own way of like, you know, um, opening portals across 
you know, vast, you know, uh, distances, but they, you know, it was very different approaches, like not quite the scientific approach. I mean, it was like almost like fake science done by Aperture Labs, whereas like, you know, Black Mesa tried to be a lot more scientific and, you know, thorough with their testing and stuff, whereas the testing in Portal 2 is basically like throw stuff at a wall and whatever sticks is what we go with <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> and yeah, like they got, like I would say story-wise Portal 2 is up there if not at the same level in terms of depth as the Half-Life franchise. I, I And I, I don't think it's, you know, considered any less or more or even, it's, I don't even know if it's underrated, like I think people do rate it highly for this regard, but I think like, because it's so funny, I think people do overlook how well-developed, you know, the mythos is in Portal 2 and like how, how really well done, like telling the story of the rise and fall of Aperture Labs was done, even if it wasn't a direct telling of the story, you saw it through, you know, the progression of like, when you're going through the puzzles, like you get to see like, because you see all these abandoned experiment sites and like the ambition and like the the quality of like people that they were trying to attract as test subjects in the initial thing. And then like, as you end up in like different areas, like, okay, moving on from this abandoned site to this next abandoned site, like you're going from like the fifties to sixties to seventies of like, and you're, you're seeing like the decline of cave Johnson. He's becoming crazier and crazier. And by the way, Fantastic voice cast in this game. Like, glad, like, Ellen McLean, re- like, returns as GLaDOS, like, the, the maniacal testing robot computer that's trying to kill you. But they introduced, like, Wheatley, who's, like, the incompetent, stupid, like, drone who's connected to GLaDOS's network, who's just an idiot, voiced by Stephen Merchant, who is, like, known in kind of British comedy world. He's one of, uh, like he's basically Stephen, he's basically, uh, a Ricky Gervais writing partner for the office and for like extras and stuff. But then cave Johnson himself was voiced by JK Simmons, who I think people know him a lot more now, but I would say before whiplash, he was sort of like one of like the great, you know, character actors that people would look at and go, oh yeah, him, but what's his name? I think his most famous role prior to that point was being J. Jonah Jameson in the uh, Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. Yeah, or when he was like that, the neo-Nazi leader guy in Oz. Oh yeah, that's right too. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, it's... uh As, as the eccentric Cave Johnson, the very eccentric Cave Johnson... Yes. Um, anyways, I can't speak highly enough of Portal. And like, I think one of the other things too that makes Portal 2 so great is that, you know, there's, there's the single player campaign you can go through, but there's also a full second co-op campaign you can go through. And it's way harder and you know, really tests a relationship with a person, but I've, I went through it twice with two different people and it was just as satisfying both times. And yeah, um, 
also I have to say, I'm not going to spoil anything because if you haven't played it, you really need to, you, you should play this game. I think it's one of the play- games that everyone who likes video games should probably play at least once. The ending is fantastic. One of the best endings I've ever seen in a video game. I recall getting to the end stage and uh, the last battle you have with Gladys. Of course, Gladys's operating system has just gone completely off the rails and is now a tremendous threat to the safety of you, you and your person in the laboratory. And just being in a position where you have to fire off your last shot and just kind of, you know, not really being sure what the hell you're supposed to do and just trying to shoot at so many different objects and walls in the room because it's, I mean, there's no obvious place to shoot your portal. I mean, sure, there may be some holes in the ceiling and whatnot, but, you know, disregard those because, oh, they're, you know, anything you see through them is just, well, extra scenery. You can't interact with them, right? And then maybe you just take a wild stab in the dark and you're like, oh, shoot through one of these and engage the end sequence and the end cinematic and then realize, oh, sweet God, what have I done? Yes. And I think that's all we need to say because that is a huge spoiler alert. And granted, the game is 10 years old. I still think that it's a thing that um, you should probably experience. And I mean, or if you're, if you're going to get it spoiled, you can spoil it for yourself elsewhere. I don't want to spoil it for you. Yeah, we want to sleep uh, easier tonight. We don't need that on our consciences. Exactly. But uh, Portal 2 is, uh, I think, one of the gold standards of video gaming uh, in the modern era of the past, what, 10, 15, 20 years? Yeah, it's definitely one of the high watermarks. And you cannot go wrong playing it on Xbox 360, PS3, uh, PC, or Mac platform. It doesn't really matter. You're getting uh, the very same experience across both, or, or all platforms, not just both consoles, but all platforms. Uh, you need to play it. You absolutely need to play it at least once in your life from start to finish. It's not easy. There are points yeah. that are tremendously challenging and uh, sections where you get through it and you're like, Ooh, okay, thank God. Don't want to do that again. <laughs> yep. But uh, I, I'm sure even more so on the uh, two-player co-op mode, which I never did, but uh, you did. And uh, it, it sounds like it takes two people at points. Well, it, yeah, it's it, the mechanic is built around four portals instead of just two. Oh. So it gets – so whereas Portal 2 was challenging, it, you know, nothing was insurmountable, but like – the co-op mode is like it it requires a particular degree of like communication and like when you're able to like both figure out because having the two extra portals adds that whole other level of like complexity to everything. And when you finally figure that, like when you figure out some of the harder puzzles in the co-op mode, it's like, holy crap, I'm a smart person. <laughs> But you get to share that experience with another person. You're both like, holy crap, we're brilliant. We figured it out. High five. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. So if you have someone easily and readily readily available around to engage in the co-op mode, try that out as well. If not, don't worry about it and play through the single-player campaign mode. Both are enriching experiences that you need to have if you consider yourself a video game player. So again, Portal 2, 10 years old, Game of Thrones, also 10 years old. 
some that's some fine quality content we got celebrating uh ten year milestones. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. So we're going to leave on a high note and end things there. But uh, before we go, as always, we encourage you to reach out and touch us with your words, not your dirty, dirty hands. We don't know where they've been. Your words instead. That's all we'll accept. You can email us, info at com and let us know your experiences playing Portal, uh, perhaps watching Game of Thrones. Do you share Dennis's opinion that the uh, last season in particular really dropped the ball, or did it still do it for you in terms of the Game of Thrones watching experience? Uh, again, you can email us in the long form, info at com or drop us line. We are on social media on both Facebook and Twitter, at The Arcade Show on both of those platforms. And if you haven't done so already, give yourself the gift of subscribing to our podcast. We are on iTunes and on Google Play. Direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of thearcadeshow.com. So that about wraps us up for this week. We thank you so much for joining us once again and hope you'll join us again in the future. So until then, good night. Good night.